0: Welcome, everyone. Okay, so we're, we're in the middle of the story of Yaakov working for Laban, his uncle, father-in-law, father-in-law times two plus uncle. And Yaakov's been working for him um, now for 14 years, in return for which he's married to two women, the first of whom he did not intend to marry, that's Leah, and then he's married to Rachel as well the additional seven years. So the Torah says in verse number 25, So after Rachel gives birth to Yosef, and she named him Yosef in the previous verses for two different reasons. She said, in verse 23, and the second statement is, so she says that God should she prays as it were naming the child Yosef that she says God should give me an additional child remember that Leah has six boys and one girl Bilwa and Zilpah each have two have, have two sons Rachel only has one so she has fewer than the two shebachot. so she prays for another child that's actually a very important point that we'll pick up with later on, but she wants another child. Yosef Hashem However, as far as she, as soon as she gives birth to Yosef, Yaakov says to Laban, "Shalcheni." Shalcheni means free me or send me away, and it's not really clear what he's asking. It's, it's clear that he wants to leave, um, but the Shalcheni mean give me permission to leave? Either because he thinks he needs permission. Is a member of the House of Laban. So he needs permission to leave. Or is it simply a courtesy? He's, he can leave, but he wants to ask permission. It's nice to leave, nice to ask. Or, does shalcheni mean something else? Namely, give me a send-off. That is to say, not just permit me to go, but I'm leaving now. It's time to give me some kind of a gift or gifts, some kind of recognition how... Success where your worker, etc. Much along the lines of what we find later in the Torah, in the book of Devarim, in Devarim chapter fifteen, where the Torah there speaks of these of the of these, uh, slave that was sold to you. This is found in Devarim chapter fifteen, in verse number twelve. If your brother. The Hebrew or the Hebrew woman was sold to you as a slave and worked for you for seven years. In the seventh year, you should send that person free from you. You have to free the slave. Torah says at the end, after six years of labor, you have to free the slave. We've seen that earlier in the Torah, in Shemot as well. But here in Devarim, it's chapter 15, verse number 12. And then the Torah adds When you send them away, do not send them empty handed. So don't send them with nothing. Don't say you're free. Go ahead. But rather, you should, you should furnish him. With, and then the Torah spells out the things you should give the slave upon freeing the slave. From your flock, from your threshing floor, means wheat or produce, and from the vat, means probably wine. Dekib normally is wine. So you have to give him food, you have to give him animals. That God has blessed you. Give him from that which God has blessed you. And then the Torah adds, you should remember. You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And God freed you. Therefore, I command you to do this thing, a good example of a mitzvah, that in doing the mitzvah, we are recalling the story of the Exodus. Perhaps it has a very, it can be read in a number of ways. Uh, one is be kind to the slave, you were slaves yourself, you know how it feels. Or it could, could be even more than that. Namely, when you left Egypt, you left with a lot of possessions. The Egyptians gave you possessions. And as God had predicted in the book of Breshit, when you leave Egypt, slaves that are freed from Israel. It doesn't say Mitzrayim, but when your slaves are free, they'll leave with a lot of ruchush, with a lot of possessions. So one can even read the story of the gifts that were given to Israel upon their freedom, leaving the land of Egypt, as a kind of precursor to what the Torah says in Devarim, chapter 15, in either event, you are to recall that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, And therefore, upon freeing the slave, you should give the slave all kinds of gifts. And the Torah doesn't spell out precisely the reason for the gifts, but one could say that if you free the slave, the slave has no way to make a living, at least not initially. So perhaps in the short run to tie the slave over, it's one way to understand it. You give the slave materials that will allow the slave to live for some period of time until the slave can find other other labor otherwise what does it mean to free somebody who can't find a job so basically also a kind of slavery can't survive maybe in the case over here it's not clear how this person was sold to you in the first place because in the torah there are two different kinds of slaves hebrew slaves one is one the sale was mandated by the court in the words of the torah Vinim kar says in the book of Shemot, you have situations where someone stole, couldn't pay it back, then is sold as a slave to repay the debt. And then we have other situations in the book of Vayikra where someone is poor, kind of indentured servant, someone is poor and sells himself into, into slavery. It's not clear in the book of Devarim what kind of slave they're talking about, either out of poverty or there's some criminal offense, but in either event, at the end of the six years, and here too the Torah talks of six years, you are to give the slave gifts. And you re- and and remember, remember that you were also slaves, you know what it feels like, or remember your experience. So that halacha one could say that we have in the book of Devarim, that if, upon freeing the slave, you give the slave gifts. As the Torah says, lo in verse number 13 when you send the slave free do not send the slave empty with nothing empty-handed and now we have our story of Yaakov going to Avon send me he says that's an important word for the Jacob narratives as we'll see send me away send me back home give me my wives and my children it also recalls a verse later in the Torah, in the book of Shemot, in chapter 21, in the laws that are given through Moshe to the people after the 10 commandments. And the Torah says about the Hebrew slave and the male and female Hebrew slaves. It's a very interesting topic in general, but the Torah says, that in ishahu If this slave, came was was a married man let's say for example and has children and now the slave is freed after six years the slave leaves with his family he leaves with his wife and with his children there's a different situation if he came with no family and he was given a a slave woman who produces these babies the master keeps those that's what the Torah says in chapter 21 but if he came in as a married man married children or whatever he leaves that way so over here, it's interesting to, in general, to think about these narratives, to what extent the narratives and to what degree they are to be read in conjunction with the legal sections. Because here we have exactly that case. Yaakov says, I was, I worked for you, a Tanad na shai I give me my wife, my wife and my children. In this case, I worked for them. They were my wages, so actually they're mine. They were purchased through my work. Notice that in verse number 26, the word Avodah, Ayin bet appears three times. What Jacob is emphasizing is Ayin bet Avad, to work, but in Evid is also a slave. And one of the questions about Jacob's sojourn in the House of Ravan, which at this point is 14 years and will end up being 20 years. An interesting question is, was he a worker or was he a slave? In general, it's interesting to look at the Torah itself, the way the Torah portrays at least the, the, the Hebrew slave. Let's leave the non-Hebrew slave out of it. But the Hebrew slave is the Hebrew slave presented to us as a slave Or fundamentally, the Torah is moving towards seeing the Hebrew slave, not as a slave, but as a worker. And within the Torah itself, one can see a change, I think, perhaps, the way the Torah represents the slave or portrays the slave in the Book of Exodus. And then where the Torah portrays the slave in the Book of Vayikra. In Vayikra, the slave there is basically a worker. And in Shmo the slave is a slave. However, the Torah seems to be moving away from slavery. We can put it that way. In any event, what is Jacob? Is Jacob a slave or a worker? Is a very good question. But the word ayin bet dawit appears in this very verse three times. And here's what's very interesting a point that Devorah pointed out many years ago about the word eved in the Jacob narrative. The word eved in the Jacob narrative appears 14 times seven and seven and what she noticed was that it appears seven times before the birth of joseph and it appears seven times after the birth of joseph and what i noticed her having said that was that the 14th time it appears the 14th time it appears is in the verse that comes up later chapter 31 where Jacob complains to love about how he's been mistreated. And Jacob says to Lavan, I have worked for you. One might say slaves for you. 14 years for your two daughters and six years for the flock. So the 14th time the word Eben appears is in the verse, I work for you 14 years. Number, the word is in fact, the 14th time it appears. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, we all know, of course, we're not being counters, but we do know that the number seven is a number that is often used, the same word or the same roots, I would say, to accent, to, to, uh, to make a point. And the point is that the word evid, Jacob, an evid, he was an evid for seven years, Before the 14 years, and he's gonna be in Avant the last six years as well. From his perspective, Jacob will say at the end of the 20 years, I was a slave. Now we'll see what that means. I was a slave, I was as opposed to a worker. Because we have to, what is the difference between a worker and a slave? It's a very good question. There's several important differences. But Jacob says to Raban, listen. I work for you, and, and yeah, it's not just that I work for you. You know the work that, that I did. I tell you a doctor. You know. We don't, we don't know yet the nature of Jacob's work, how good a worker he was, but he claims to be, and the text suggests, I think, that he tells the truth. He claims to be an extraordinary, extraordinarily diligent worker, as he will describe later on, and it has the ring of truth to it. It's always a question when somebody speaks and they tell him the truth. But in that case, I think it's clear that he tells the truth. He was an extraordinarily diligent worker. And he says to you, love and, and and you know this. So therefore it's time to leave. And he probably is asking for some kind of, but uh... take the phone. Take it out. Um, yeah, so we'll see about that in terms of the nature of the work. Um, now we have Laban's response. Laban's response in verse twenty, next verse. Every time one speaks, we pay very careful attention. Laban says, "If I have found favor in your eyes, it's make, about to make a request." and menachesh uh, related to the word nachash or snake is a diviner here they translate if you will indulge me it's not a precise translation I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me on your account what do you mean I learned by divination what does that mean I learned by divination so Yaakov picks up on that but we'll, let's, let's see let's leave that in abeyance for a moment Yaakov does not respond because the next verse begins with the word Vayomer. He said, the is still speaking. So therefore, when you have two consecutive verses that begin with the introduction he said, but no one has spoken in, in between, it means, it can mean any one of several things. But one thing it often means is a response was perhaps anticipated, but not forthcoming. Jacob is silent. I've seen by divination that God has blessed me because on your account. And Yaakov says nothing. Vayomar and Lavan said nakva scharcha alai v'yateinah. Nakva. Here they translate name the wages. Name the wages. Fix the wages. And I will give them to you. Name the wages. Tell me your price. What he's saying is don't leave me. You're on your group. I've been blessed ever since you came. I don't want you to leave. So name your, name your wages. And now we have Jacob's response. So he seems to have learned something, positive and negative, after 14 years in the house of Lava. First thing you learn is how to deal with Lava. And now Yaakov begins to speak. Let's just read a little bit here, say something about it, and I'll pause for comments or questions. By Yomre Love. So Yaakov repeats in verse 29 what he said earlier, those you know, he says, how I worked. And that and and, and under what circumstances your flock was with me. If they how your livestock has fared with me, you know. So again, you know how I worked. And Yaakov continues, when i came here i had very little you gave me very little you had a little before i came and since i came it has multiplied it's become many god has blessed you i would say upon my coming and now he says when shall I do when shall I care for for my house and remember that the word buy it, which is a central word in the Jacob narrative often means family I have to take care of my own family after all I've worked 14 years for zero pay the pay was the uh, the two wives etc but I got it gotta, support my own family. And what is Yaakov saying over here? What Yaakov's saying is what Lovin had actually said was, what do you mean I divined and I divined, divination. And in divination I realized ever since you came, I've done well, I don't want you to leave. I've divined means there's no relationship between your work and between my wealth. That's what divine means because why do you need divination? He's, he's working like crazy. He's a great worker. He's built up your flock through caring for the flock properly and through taking responsibility for it. We don't have the divine to know that. Divine means, I don't, I don't know how it happens. See, it's strange, isn't it? You know something? It's a magical thing, you're a good luck charm. Says Yaakov, I'm not a good luck charm. You know how I work, I told you a doctor. When I came, you had very little. Yes, God did bless you, but it's because I'm working. It's not because and now time to work for myself. So he doesn't say, he doesn't respond to how much name the wages. He doesn't say, first point he makes is he addresses the first thing Ravan said, that I through divination have discovered that you are a source of blessing as if the work is irrelevant. That's the first thing Yaakov says. And now I want to pick up on the second thing Yaakov says, a couple of observations here, and then I'll open it up to questions. Now, Robin says, okay, what shall I give you? In verse number 31, what should I give you? What, what, What kind of wages do you want? And Jacob says, I don't want you to give me anything says Jacob, don't pay me anything, but rather I will return to work for you. He agrees to go back under the following conditions. I will return. I will be the shepherd of your flock. I will watch on guard your possessions. I agree to do that, but under the following conditions. Before we get to the details of the conditions, what are, what basically is Yaakov saying over here? What Yaakov is saying over here is listen, you say, What should I give you? In fact, he said initially, There's a very clever play in the Hebrew here. English can't possibly pick it up, but the Hebrew picks it up. I'll get to it in a second. What should I give you? And what Yaakov is saying, let me say what Yaakov is thinking and what, what Yaakov is actually saying. What Yaakov is saying is, if I wait for you to give me something, I already, we went down that path 14 years ago. Name your wages. Rachel, the younger daughter. And somehow I ended up with two wives, not one. And I ended up with all kinds of problems. And the one I first married is Leah and not Rachel. And I couldn't be more explicit about it. Rachel, the younger daughter. Therefore, if I rely upon you to give me something, I'll never get it. And therefore, we're not going down that path again. I may have been a fool 14 years ago, but I'm not going down that path now. You'll give me nothing. Well, because if you give me, I'll never get it. Here's the arrangement that I will, return to, I will return to work under the following conditions. What he says is very simply, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to guard your flock, but I'm also going to work for myself. Don't give me anything. I'm going to go back to the flock. The animals that are born, the way the animals normally look, that is the goats are dark and the sheep are light, are white. And that, that's what's normal in that part of the world most of the animals will be that way. And that's your animals. Any animals that have spots or speckles or blemishes or streaks or anything else, or any of the sheep that are not white but are dark, those are mine, that's my conditions. You're not giving me anything. Effectively, I'm watching the flock. I'm working for both of us. I work for you and I work for me. I like that better than you giving me anything. And by the way, there is a very clever play here, on what Levin said initially. Levin says you, after Lovan basically says, in effect, "There's no relationship between your work and my and my profit. Your good luck, John. Tell me what you want." And Lavin had said, "Nakva The word "nakva" is a very interesting word. What verse was that? Verse number twenty verse 28 is clearly a prey the word nok, nokov is a very interesting word in the Bible the male and female biological male and female she's called Nekeva and he's called the Zachar. and Nekev is, a, is an opening actually so Nekeva <laughs> refers to the female anatomy and but the word narkov, actually, for example, narkov shema shem yumat means to curse, actually. And probably means to puncture. Probably related to puncturing. narkovah schorcha alayvi is a play in the Torah on the word Nakava. Because the first time, what, would, what were Jacob's wages? Rachel bitra And we know how that worked out. When his reward was the daughters of Ravan, or the daughter he wanted of Ravan, we know exactly how that worked. Now, Lavan didn't lie. Lovin said to Jacob, Jacob said, I worked seven years for Rachel, and Lavan had said, I'd rather give it to you than anybody else. Lavan never lies, right? Of course, he's the biggest liar. He never actually lies, but it's all lies. So we know how that worked out. He worked out that now he had a family constructed upon sibling rivalry. And which, which, which will affect the entire family and the struggles for Jacob's affection and all that. So that's what happened the first time. And what 11 is saying, I fooled them once, I fooled them twice, that's the nakvas, or, So the Torah recalls for us, in case we could miss it, that first situation. Jacob is not going down that path again. The question about Jacob is, and he's going to do the story of the speckled and the spotted, we'll get to that in, in a little while but the question one can ask over here actually is thinking about it retrospectively when Yaakov goes to Lovat and sends and says I worked for you for 14 years send me away send me away and he says it after Joseph is born and as I think I mentioned at the end of last week uh, from his perspective his mission accomplished he came to get a wife and the wife is to produce a child who is could be covenantal. Now, like Esau's wives, Esau marries Canaanite women. So they, those children will be half Canaanites. That's out. Jacob now has the child that he had, had come for, Rachel's Rachel's son. So Jacob says, mission accomplished. shalcheni. But something happened in between the shalcheni and Jacob leaving, which is six years later, and he reads on with great difficulty. Pushed out, as it were. So how do we understand that? Is that part of Jacob's plan? Or does love and make him an offer and Jacob sees a financial opportunity? Or is this in the works the entire time? It's very hard to tell. But what is clear is that we, the reader, upon seeing Jacob say shalcheni, assume Jacob's going to leave because he came for a reason, go back home, he took a vow and somehow he gets caught. He's there for another six years and, these six years, he becomes a wealthy person. On the other hand, he's now in danger at the end of the six years. So that's a question about Yaakov. Is Yaakov really on point in terms of his mission? Or is Yaakov seduced by the opportunity? Is this an opportunity to, to uh, become wealthy? And maybe an opportunity to pay back Ravon for the unfair way in which Ravon has treated him I think in the Chumash, you can't actually tell. But he makes love an offer that on can't refuse because it looks too good to be I mean, it looks too good to be true. And maybe Lovan's even suspicious. But Lovan falls for it, and we'll see what Yaakov does. Okay, before we continue with the speckled and spotted, are there any comments or questions? Uh
1: feel free to raise your hand physically or uh yes. Or Rabbi. Raise your hand. Yes.
2: yes.
3: When, when you were making the point about whether the avoda was enslavement or, or just labor, um, I think it's helpful to, to compare that there's another situation in the Torah where a son-in-law needs to ask his father-in-law for permission to leave, or rather wants to leave his father-in-law. And the contrast is so clear that, ya- uh, that Yaakov says, to love on the same way Moshe has to say to Paro, but when Moshe has to leave Yitro, he just says to him, el chana el achai. That the ashuva el That You can see the difference in the relationship.
0: Yeah, what's, uh, I agree there are differences. What do you, um, what is... That,
3: that, the, that, that Yaakov felt that he was up, that he needed to be released. He needed to be the, the shalach is when someone is enslaving someone else, you have to say shalcheni, just like right. Moshe says to Paro, shalachas ami. Right, right. Really, clearly yeah, sure. Moshe didn't feel that way with Yitro, he, he wasn't, right. I mean, there was no question that he wasn't, but I'm just saying it It reinforces the fact that he felt that it was some kind of servitude involved, that he couldn't okay. just say right. to him, sure. ashuba elcha el avi, or, you know, I want to go back to Canaan, just, I'm just letting you know that, you know, I'd like to leave that he feels like he has to be released from some kind of bondage.
0: Right, it's true that, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, the truth of the matter is that in the case of Nitro, uh, I believe it's chapter four, um, he does promise to come back. He says, I, w- I want to go. It sounds like he says, I s- I'm want i taking a trip to see my relatives. That's what it sounds like. Um, of course, the, we the reader un- understand that that is not actually the truth. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't tell them the truth. In the case of Yitro, he's not going to see his relatives if they're still alive. He's going to free the people from Yitzrayim. And in point of fact, it would appear that he had no intention whatsoever of ever seeing Yitro again, as much as he may love Yitro, which he does. because not only does he not see Yitro again, he also leaves his wife and children behind. That's another contrast. Yaakov says, I want to leave with my wife and with, with my, with, give, give me my, my family. I want to leave with my family. Moshe, Moshe actually has no intention of leaving with his family. Moshe does go down with Tzipporah, but actually Moshe, it would appear is off to the land of Canaan without the wife and the, and, the, and the children. So there is your point is well taken. I just wanted to add that in the case of Moshe and Yitro, there is a sense where Moshe leaves is going to leave Yitro, not because he doesn't love Yitro, he does love him. And he's probably the only person that Moshe loves. Uh, but he has, but his his mission takes him elsewhere. And that's the story of Moshe and Yitro. It's a very powerful story. His mission takes him elsewhere. And when your mission takes you someplace, that's where you got to go. We have no choice if we em- embrace our mission. And it has all kinds of implications for people around us. In the case of Moshe, it means leaving the one person you actually care for, not just care for, I would say he sees Yitro maybe as a, as a kind of Rebbe, he, he learned from Yitro was a priest. He learned from Yitro. Yitro and Moshe share a love of justice. Yitro going to help them later with setting up a system, but he leaves him. But for sure, you're correct about this, for sure. That is, it's different. It's not about Yitro wants him to stay. Yitro's, I mean, they're kindred spirits, but he just, mission takes him elsewhere. In the case of Ravan, and your point is well taken for another reason, because the parallels between you love, the experience in the house of Ravan. And the experience in Egypt are clear; they're, they're parallel stories, as we'll, we, we've talked about that many times, and we'll see it again. They're abs- and the, the one the one who recognized this, of course, is that story of Ravan, Jacob in the house of Ravan and Israel in Egypt are actually parallel stories. All kinds of parallel language. Was of course the Passover Haggadah. mabikish Laban harami Marino. That's how we start the drasha of the Haggadah, the Seder. Go and see what Jacob, what happened to uh, how Lovin mistreated Jacob. Ravan I mean, is worse than Pharaoh, but saying worse than means they're similar. So the, this is another good example of the Shalcheni, which is another parallel between the experience in the house of Ravan and the Israel in Egypt. Yeah, that's a good point, an important point. And we'll revisit that uh, in a couple of ways. The word Avoda, by the way, which appears 14 times with Jacob in the house of Ravan, seven before the birth of, jo- of Joseph, seven after, it appears seven times in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. Exactly, five plus two, five in chapter one and two in chapter two. And that's not a coincidence, obviously. Anybody else?
2: Yes, <clears throat> I, 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 Rabbi Sablo, I'd like to uh, point out another um, parallel with the uh, different, the Israelite slave to with the, uh and Yaakov's position that is one of the reason given reason in the text for the Israelite slave being uh Hanek Taniklo so etc it's because he works extra more than as a as a laborer where he's on 24-7 he works day and night and Yaakov explicitly describes his work as a shepherd Yom, uh, Laila. that he, he took responsibilities that wouldn't have been expected of a normal worker. Uh, yes, of course,
0: that's an excellent point. It's very, it's, it's clearly the case. And uh, I would say even more than you're saying, I mean, it's the same point that you made. Now, now we did Yaakov work day and night, the Torah says about the slave and devouring, he mishnes whatever that means, it's double, the way the Talmud understand, he worked double for you. And um, day and night, according to the Talmud, in the case of Yaakov, he's explicit that he worked day and night, and not only that, he's explicit that he says, "I I, I was I was burned up in the daytime and I froze at night." He says, <laughs> So the idea that Yaakov is a incredibly assiduous worker who puts in, not only that, he says, when something went wrong, I paid it out of, out of my own pocket. So you know the idea that Yaakov worked above and beyond would appear to be the case as far as the Torah describes Jacob talking, but it has a feeling that it's really true. Lover doesn't deny it. Uh, That's certainly the case. Um, Yeah, it's a very good point. And by the way, since you mentioned that, I would point out something else very curious, something to think about in the case of Yaakov, who was working for, uh, one might say slaving for Lavan. He works 20 years. The first two, there's three sets of years. The first one is seven years, then another seven, and then six, which is very curious, actually, if you think about it, because in the Torah, the slave works for six years and presumably goes free in the seventh year. Presumably, he works only for six. The Torah says that in Devarim, the Torah says that in Sefer in Shemot, in the seventh year goes free. Now, that's true of Jacob's last cycle. He worked six years for a total of 20, and he he, he leaves. Um, I just wonder about the seven years. What is the idea of Evo'otcha Sheva Shani? Which Jacob himself says, you know, I I work even more than normal. I work beyond. Because he knows, I think, that he's asking for something unusual. He's asking for Rachel Bitra Tano, which is not the normal, the younger one. But I think it is interesting that the seven years is more than six and that the first two are seven and seven. And then of course, the last cycle is the six years upon which he leaves. So and in general, to look at the story of Jacob in the house of Ravan as paradigmatic of what it means to be a slave. And we're, we're gonna revisit this because it's not just about the extra year. Uh, it's about many things, including not getting paid appropriately That's part of it. And it's more than that. And we'll come back to that later. Okay, thank you for that comment. Uh, is there anybody else who wants to say something about these verses?
1: Also, if you're on, something. Yeah. And if you're on Facebook, feel free to ask a question in the chat. We wanna hear from you
0: too. I have something to add to this myself. I'll add one point and then I'll take the other Facebook comments or whatever. And that is, there's another interesting word in Jacob's little speech over here. When he says to Lavan, he says, listen. He says it's not about you don't need divination. You know how I work. In verse number twenty nine, when I came here, he says there was there was a little. There was maat, and then and then it has it has uh, become become much more. Um, he has grown by your throat it has grown, and the Hebrew word is a very interesting word because we all remember that before Jacob leaves to the house of Rabban, he has a dream. In the dream, God speaks to Jacob, and God makes a promise to Jacob. The promise Uforast. was Ufarasta is specifically the promise made to Jacob, you will grow in every direction. And it's part and parcel of that whole sequence, that whole story, which is all about Jacob's promise, vow, to build the house, to build the inclusive structure. That's what's unique about Jacob. Abraham and Isaac didn't do that. They chose one son over the other. Jacob wants everybody to be included to buy it the house. So the word Vayifrot is a Jacob word. And what Jacob says to Laban, he says, look, When I came here to work, you had very little, and I made you rich, and by yefrods lorom, you have grown great, you're doing great. But you know something, says the Torah, and we're supposed to think of this because we remember what God said to Jacob, the blessing of Uforaster, as I recall it, says Jacob, or the text says it to us, is not about love on Uforaster, it's about Jacob Uforaster. So it's time for me to fulfill the blessing that I was given. It's nice that I'm helping you out. What about my blessing? And it's interesting that after Jacob manipulates all the flocks and becomes a wealthy man, at the last verse of chapter 30, the absolutely last verse of chapter 30 is, after Jacob's most manipulations, and the man grew exceedingly, Right exceedingly prosperous, Vayifrodes, and that's Jacob. So, Maod, Maod, even more than Laban. he made Laban rich, but he made himself even richer, with the manipulation of the of the rods and all that. So there the Vayifrodz, there what the Torah seems to be suggesting is whether Jacob should have stayed or shouldn't have stayed, at the end of the day, he becomes, through this manipulation, which is problematic obviously, but through the manipulation, we have the Ufarachstah, we have a fulfillment of what god had said which does remind us of what god said to abraham in the, about the covenant that the three generations will suffer three generations of slavery then they will leave with a lot of possessions so we have another parallel between the experience of jacob in the house of Laban and the experience of israel in the land of egypt and that's the and the word by the way the word Peretz by Yefroitz Peratzah, which appears now three times in the, in the blessing in the beginning in chapter twenty-eight, and here in the middle of chapter thirty for Lavan, and the end of chapter thirty for Jacob. This word is is not will, will will resurface in the book of Genesis in a very important place, and we'll get to that someday. Okay, let us now continue. Now we have so this is what Jacob has told Laban I'm not. I don't want you to give me anything. I want, I'll work for you, but they also work for me. I'm working for you, I work for myself, and, and you can get all the normal animals, he said. Fine. And now we come to a different, difficult verse to figure out. Verse number 20, verse number 32. <speaking in Hebrew> So Jacob says, here's what we'll do. Now here there's a question. Let me pass through your flock. here they translate be moving. Haser, removing from there, every hatred speckled and spotted animal, every dark colored sheep, and every spotted and speckled goat, okay? So in other words, it sounds like, the question is who's doing the removing? I will pass through the flock today, sounds like I'm doing the removing. I'm doing the removing. And Vayas haris, such shall be my wages, could be interpreted. Those are my wages. I'm going to go today to the flock. I'll take out all the dark sheep. Those are mine. And all the goats that have some white in them, or speckles or spots or whatever, that's mine. The rest of the animals are yours. This is mine. And presumably, those born from the speckled and the spotted will be speckled and spotted. They're mine. Those born from the dark sheep will be mine. They're a minority, obviously. They're unusual, you know. And uh, everything else is yours. That's what it sounds like. That's one way to read it. And if that be the case, if that is what Yaakov is saying, then the next, then the next two verses are in verse thirty-four. Laban agrees. Well, let it be as you say. And then the next verse the verse number 35 which says that Lovan then went to the flock Lovan removed the speckled and the spotted goats the speckled and spotted she goats and he goats that had white in it and all the dark colored sheep and put them in charge of his sons. And the next verse, he takes them three days away. And Jacob was shepherding the remainder of Laban's flock. The question is very simple question. Is that a violation of the agreement? Is that, is that a violation of the agreement? Or did Jacob mean I will go through the flock today and, and you can you come with me? Hoser and you shall remove. But then vayas chari would mean and the remainder is mine. So I think a, 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 certainly a good reading would, 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 would be that Lovan violates the agreement straight up. Jacob had said, all those that have speckled and spots and the dark, uh, the dark sheep, which is unusual, are mine. But Lovan wants to make sure there aren't too many of those. So Lovin goes right away and he himself removes these animals. Now does he remove them? But to a distance where they couldn't wander back into the herd and perhaps mate with other animals. So he removes them and he gives them, we are told, by Etain Biad Banav, and he left them in charge of his sons. And that's an interesting verse because we, the reader, had no idea Rabban has sons. They'd never been mentioned. We know he has daughters, he has an older daughter and a younger daughter. But now we discover something new that he has sons. And that's an important statement over here because these sons are now to become rivals of Jacob. Because for every animal that Jacob takes from Lavan's flock, legitimately, I'm not saying he takes it by, he does manipulate, we'll get to that. But on paper, it's all legitimate. But the more he takes from Lavan, the is in the estate someday for Lavan's sons. The sons presumably will inherit their father. That's the given, I think, in the Torah. And the, the wives are, yeah, are in the purview of their, of their husbands. So if Lavan has, I mean, the, the important point here, if Lavan has, again, acted in a sneaky kind of way, removing them and setting them far off. So, I mean, it fits in well with Lavan. And perhaps it can be seen as somewhat of a justification for what Jacob did. It's not clear that he needs that much justification given the fact that we know he was mistreated by Lavan, but in any event, mistreated or not, what he's about to do certainly is to trick Lavan to manipulate the flock in such a way that he will become a very wealthy person. He will get the majority of the animals presumably and the better ones as well. That's what he's going to do. Now, before we get to some of the details of this, I wanted to make a general comment about the story of Jacob manipulating the the, the, the flock with the rods and all that. And simply to make the point that the story of Jacob's accumulation of wealth in the house of Laban, which is the subject of the remainder of chapter 30, is also the subject of the first part of chapter 31. And just to put it out there, the Torah has given us two radically different uh, explanations of how Jacob became a a wealthy man. The explanation of chapter 30 is, he manipulates Laban's flocks. He fools Laban. Laban's unaware what he's going to do. And Jacob, through some kind of pseudoscience, uh, it's not a science I think that we buy into today, but it's a science that, if you want to call it science, it's a folk belief that is present in ancient Near East and in the Talmud as well, uh, speaks of this kind of, uh, that if, if, if animals or people are mating, what they see at the time has some effect on the, on that which, w- which will be born. And modern science doesn't buy that, but that is presumably what lies behind the story over here. Um, That's one story. And then chapter 31, it's a completely different story where Jacob recalls a dream that he had to his two wives that he summons to the field. Now, maybe he never had the dream. That's one possibility. He made it up. But if we assume he does have the dream and telling the truth about the dream, then we have a very different description of how Jacob became wealthy. And of course, we will, and all the commentaries try to figure out, What is the relationship between these two very descriptions of how Jacob became a wealthy person? I'll I'll put in my own two cents at some point as well. Anyway, this is what lies ahead over here. Um, Before I stop for a moment to take comments or questions, I just wanted to point out, this is not our province here, but I will point out that in the book of Genesis, say for gray you know, if you ask what are the Great, great moments in the book of Genesis. There are several, but if you have to figure out one of the sort of the highlights of the book, you know, one could say the binding of Isaac is one. One could say the garden of Eden story is the central story. One can say that Jacob wrestling with the angel. That will be high up on the list in my view. Uh, Joseph's descent into, into Egypt, Joseph meeting his brothers. You could say many things. But here are two stories that I think or two, uh, two, two narratives or two texts in Genesis that I don't think would be on our top 10. One is Jacob manipulating the rods of the speckled and the spotted and the striped animals. That's one story. I don't think we'll be on our top 10. And the second that would not be on our top 10 would be chapter 36, which is a statement of these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before there was a king in the land of Israel, for Israel had a king. The eight kings of Edom in chapter 36 and the speckled and spotted animals in chapter 30. These are precisely the two texts that I would argue that the Zohar sees as absolutely critical texts in the book of Genesis. Now, part, part of it may be that the Kabbalists like to pick on the most insignificant to find the greatest significance whatever the whatever it is, but it is interesting to note that these two texts, the story over here of Jacob with the speckled and the spotted animals. For the Zohar, great Kabbalistic work is a central centrally important text, as of course are the kings of Edom. So we're not studying the Zohar, not that that's my field of expertise anyway, but I do co-teach the Zohar with Professor Berman, we've done that on many occasions. And it's quite interesting that they're picking up on something here, but leaving that aside, just a point of information. Okay, before we just continue with this, finish the chapter, does anybody have any comments to this point?
1: I believe I saw a comment in chat from uh, Gail. Do you want to elaborate on it? Okay. Um, so what is the comment? Uh, Gail, uh, Gail made a comment that it's also the name of Yehuda's son. I'm yes, I'll get to that it... later. That
0: was my reference to parents later on. Ah, okay. That's okay. later on. Parents, the twins that are born later. I'll just mention it now, but I will get to it later. Jacob's, Judah's twin sons born with Tamar, chapter 38. That is a pivotal chapter in the book from a storyline perspective, I think it's probably the main chapter, storyline perspective, Judah and Tamar. Um, The twins are what is named Peretz and what is named Zerach. Zerach, who has a red string tied around his finger because they think he's gonna be born first. So Zerach, which means brightness, the one with the red string, of course reminds the reader is a twin. Reminds the reader of Esau. Esau is Admoni. He's a red complexion. Esau is called Edom. Edom is red. The other child that turns out to be the first, that jumps out first, is again a struggle upon birth. And the other one is the Peretz. And of course, Peretz is a Jacob word. So there you have a retelling, a refashioning of the Jacob and Esau births, the struggle upon birth. And of course, the question is, what is the relationship between the two descriptions? And I have argued in the past that the two descriptions, whereas they are somewhat parallel, are actually exactly opposite. In the case of Jacob and Yaakov and Esau, about two children who will struggle forever. because it's never clear which one is, it's never fully determined which one is first and which one is second. That's what Rebecca is told. But in the case of Peretz and Zerach, it's clear. Even though we thought Zerach is older, he's not. Heretz jumps out first. And the string around Zerach's finger, right? Which is Shawnee, which is red, but Shawnee, Shin, Nun, Yu, it all can be red shame. second. So he's second. When somebody knows they're first yes. and the other one knows the second, there's no, there's no fighting. Everybody has everybody has a different mission. I do this, you do that. We get along just fine. It's when each of us thinks we both do the same thing that's when we get into trouble. So the parents over there, of course, the parents is a Jacob word, and it's in contrast to zerach, it's Esau. And the question, of course, is always, what is this trying to teach us? So I made a suggestion, which I think fits in very well with that particular narrative. But we'll hopefully get there someday. Okay, let's continue now with our story here.
2: One more, one more question, briefly. Yes, go ahead. Okay, um, at, the, at the end of the story in their final, in their final discussion, we see that uh, uh, Lovin reveals that in, that in his philosophy, in his idea, everything still belongs to him, no matter what deals he has made. Is there, any, is, there, is, there, is there any reason behind that? Or is that just pure narcissism like, in your view? Right, it's
0: Lovin's way of seeing the world. He's, he's very consistent actually. Everything is there to serve me. That's how love and works in the world possessions, <laughs> children, family. He's, he's completely consistent. His daughters are very good because you can squeeze out an, an additional seven years of work, basically for nothing. The fact that it makes Jacob miserable, the fact that it sabotages his own daughters, as they say explicitly, he sells us for profit. That's how he works. So, right,
2: but, but, but even, ha- even but selling them for profit, they're sold. In his view, they're never sold. They're still his. Right,
0: but, but the point is, he says it clearly, that these children are mine, your children are mine, everything is mine. On the other hand, you're leaving, let's make a deal. And he tries to make some deal that benefits himself. But uh, I don't think it's, it's not a surprise. I, I would say that, to, I would say, that I would formulate it this way. The character of Lavan in Sefer Breshi is strikingly similar to another person in this book whose name is Abimelech the king of the Philistines and he is in many ways they're not identical but in many ways they're similar one of the main ways they're similar is you always blame somebody else for your problems you're always pure and innocent and the other guy or god is always the guilty party so when At the end of the Abimelech with Abraham, when he speaks to Abimelech, he says, listen, let's make a treaty. He says, let's make a deal, Abimelech. I've been so good to you, let's make a deal. And Avram says to him, your servants have stolen my water. And Abimelech has the three-part answer. I know nothing about it. Why didn't you tell me earlier? We'll take care of it tomorrow. He's exactly, he's consistent throughout. And Avram is the one that changes. Avram takes responsibility, but Abimelech is the same guy we don't really care about him. He's a foil. But Lovin is the same way. Lovin is the person that Jacob doesn't want to be, basically. At the end of the day, after he leaves Lovin, and we'll see this, he can say, that's not my place. and Garti, it's not for me. Lovin' is Lovin'. He's never going to change. I don't want him to live that way. And that's what he is. So no surprises. It's, of course, he's completely consistent. And he's very dangerous, especially for Jacob, because it's easy to buy into that way of thinking. It's so easy. So, but we'll get to that later on your the final confrontation of the two of them at the end of chapter 31 which is very interesting and we'll get we'll get there okay let's i can't, uh, I can't help
2: i can't help wondering if it's not related to his name if his name is not giving a foreshadowing
0: i think uh, it is related to the name. like a it, whiting out
2: well. a whiting out there's no detail there's no detail so there is no, right. no boundary also
0: purity big day love on. by the way i mentioned the zoar before there's something else interesting about the zoar which is this The Zohar places enormous emphasis upon colors. And what you have with Jacob, the reason Yaakov is one of the many interesting characters, his two main enemies, of course, one is Edom, which is red, and the other is Lavan, which is white. And here, actually, in the story of the speckled and the spotted, the Torah plays with the white, Koshah, Lavan, Bo, and it even throws in a third color, which is brownish or chum. Mm-hmm. So the Torah plays with the colors and whichever way the Zohar takes it. That's my area, not my area of expertise, but it's clear that they're seeing in the story of these rods and the spots and the speckles and the colors. You know, something which the Zohar is attracted to and takes in many interesting directions. Maybe we'll touch upon a couple of them, but not now. Okay, let, let's, let's see if we can just finish up our chapter here. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, sorry. So now, what we was going to do this manipulation over here. So after Loveland, let's presume that one misbehaves already by taking these animals away because presumably, unless one speaks of kind of recessive genes or something, the chances that there'll be very many speckled and spotted animals or, dark sheep is unlikely. So, basically, Jacob had suggested to Lovan an arrangement whereby Lovan has the upper hand, let's say 80% to Lovan and 20% to Jacob, but Lovan's not interested in 80 and 20. He's more interested in 100 and 0. So, he takes all these animals away. So, where the speckled and the spots going to come from? Where are the dark sheep going to come from? They're three days away. <clears throat> okay. Now, let's see. So now it says, now we're up to verse number 37. So now we have the following story. How Jacob manipulates the flocks. Let's leave our present understanding of science out of it. And we'll get to this later. There's some who try to explain it, not with science at all. We'll get to that later on. It's interesting possibilities here. But Jacob took, these are three kinds of, of wood, Almond, plain wood. Rach-ruz vi-armon. It's interesting, the very name itself of the word armon, when we translate armon, Plainwood, but the word armon, within the word armon, of course, we have the word ayin room. arum. Arum is, the snake was arum. The snake is clever. The snake is deceptive. So he's taking this, he's going to full And... Our concern, our concern is not that Lavan's being tricked. We don't like Lavan. He gets his comeuppance and good riddance. We do care about Jacob's behavior though, but we don't care about Lavan. And Jacob makes streaks in the wood, peels white stripes in them, laying bare the white of the shoots. Machsof asher Of course, the Torah now plays over and over with the word Lavan. He's going to, out, out, he's going to outsmart Lavan, actually, by exposing Ravan, exposes Ravan to give Ravan his comeuppance. And then it says he places these rods, so he places these receptacles, uh, these rods, by the troughs that the codes come to drink from when they're in mating, from the word cham or heat, when they're in heat. But the word cham, of course, will be, will be played upon in the Torah, as is the word Lavan, the word chum, which is dark. So the goats mated by the rods and they give birth to what they see, which is streaked and speckled and spotted young. Okay. By the way, as an aside, the, uh, the mating takes place, it's interesting, by the troughs, by the water, right? And it's interesting that that, of course, is where ma- human mates also meet in the, in the Torah. It's where Rebecca meets Isaac's agent or Jake, Abraham's agent in that marriage scene, that betrothal scene at the well. And then Rebe- Rachel meets Jacob at the well, and later Moshe will meet his, his wife at the well. So the point is that the Torah has not just the humans meeting at the well, but here it has the animals meeting at the well also. And the question is, what do we make of this? What, what perhaps can be, what, 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 what inferences can we draw from this? And to me, one thing I want to put out there to think about is the following. We remember... In the beginning of chapter 30, Rachel says to Yaakov, How will we him? Give me children or else I'll die. How will him? Be my inmate He says, Jacob, what am I, God? What, what, what can I do? I mean, he gets angry at her. He's angry. And her point seems to be, okay, maybe she thinks she can manipulate God. That is possible. Maybe she believes that. She's Lovin's daughter. Or maybe she's saying something else you do a pretty good job manipulating God when it serves your own purposes. You're pretty good at stealing blessings. Steal one for me. And what's interesting is that over here, you do see Jacob manipulating the animals to produce certain kinds of animals. We do see him manipulating at the well to produce the speckled and the spotted. And I'm wondering whether the parallel between the animals meeting at the well and the humans meeting at the well, including Jacob and Rachel, That the Torah doesn't intend for us to looking back at at the Rachel story, not that she's justified necessarily in what she said, but to raise some questions about Yaakov. He seems to be awfully assiduous here and highly energetic in producing these animals, whereas when it came to his his suffering wife, he dismisses her out of hand and not only that, he gets angry to boot which is why, of course, the Midrashim faults him, and Rashi faults him, but you got to wonder about it. I wonder whether the two stories should be read, should be read together. In any event, so Jacob, this is with the speckled and the spotted, these are the goats. As far as the sheep are concerned, he deals with them differently. It's in verse number 40, Jacob, he deals with them separately. He puts the, he faces the sheep, Right, which are white, he has them facing uh, the animals that have a code, which have spots in them, streaks or spots, and also the dark colored animals. So he produces for himself by yoshet lo he places or produces all kinds of wordplay over here by yoshet to place, but the word is to drink, shot tam lavan. In other words, the, the, the convoluted language, maybe, is emblematic of Jacob's manipulations of his cleverness over here to manipulate in some very clever way the flocks of Lavan to produce at the end of the day exactly what he had suggested. And not only that, in verse 41, we're told more than that. It's not just the number of the animals, which is surprising. It's the quality. Because in verse 41, the Torah distinguishes between the strong ones and the weaker ones. Right. When the sturdy animals, Makusha Rod, were mating, Jacob places the, the rods. However, in 42, when the weaker animals, the Jacob, So the weaker ones, ones and the stronger ones were Jacob. So he manipulated in two senses, the numbers, but also the quality. And out of all this, by Yefraot Tzayish Ma'od Ma'od, Jacob becomes, uh, grows exceedingly. And he has, presumably he sells the animals, he bargains them or whatever. Right. He has many flocks. male and female slaves, Gimalim He has
3: become
0: independently wealthy.
3: Rabbi Silver? Yes. But she's interested in bin, is in Beniyah of family. And that's what Livnote and Beniya whereas he's interested in the monetary because this does not make the animal better tasting or better commodity for food. Uh, so it's a, it's like not for Beniyah, for the family, which is a fault of Yaakov.
0: Well, yes, I would say the following that there's no question that, I mean, that's the whole point of the and story the, the point of the and story the, the larger point lovin is somebody that everybody is everybody for lovin's perspective is, a, is is a is a is a commodity lovin doesn't bother us he is what he is but the fact of the matter is that into jacob's own family we had similar things jacob himself is traded come to me tonight i have rented you out for the night as we discussed. so That's the real danger here. The danger here is that the danger is you can become like Lavan. And the larger question is, why is Jacob even here altogether? Several years ago, he went to Lavan and said, I want to leave. I I came for a reason. I have my, it's after Joseph is born. I have my family, time to go back home. And he is, one might say, coaxed by or seduced by the potential prophets. And now he's very wealthy. Now he has all kinds of animals, etc. But What about his promise to return? And not only that, but suddenly this manipulation as the manipulation he did back to the land of Canaan with the blessing and the birthright. And now he's actually in danger because it has not gone unnoticed. Not only that Jacob is wealthy, but how he became wealthy. He manipulated the flocks. So if you just continue one or two more verses We have the next, chapter 31, the next verse, let's take a couple of verses. Jacob hears the words of Ravan's sons saying, he took that which belonged to our father. And all of this wealth he he made from that, which is true. He did do it from Ravan. That was the agreement they had. Lavan didn't see through Jacob's cleverness. He's learned a lot from Lavan in these years. Um, and then the next verse is, verse number two is, by Ya'akov et Lavan, And Jacob saw Lavan's face. It wasn't, his manner towards him was not as, as it was in the past. And here's something very interesting. And I'll just conclude with this observation about these two verses. We're told two things. Jacob hears what Laban's children are saying. He hears. They're talking and they're not concealing it or he overhears it. And they're basically concerned that he took from their father, which means he took from them because they stand to inherit their father. Everything that Jacob took from Laban, from their perspective, he took from them. And that's very dangerous. That there's not just one of them. We don't know how many sons Lavan has. Jacob is living in Lavan's house. It's probably why he has permission to leave in the first place. And he's certainly outnumbered. He's one person living in a foreign place. And he hears Lavan's sons talking. But in verse number two, which is striking, he sees Lavan's face. He's not looking at him the same way. And the point is, he doesn't hear what Lavan says because Lavan isn't talking, Lavan doesn't speak, but he detects, he sees his face. And here, this verse is interesting, not only because it contrasts with verse number one, but here the Torah is setting up something important for the future, the idea of seeing somebody's face.
3: Isn't this exactly like Yosef and the Sar Ophim and the Sar Mashkim? The, that's the same thing when
0: he sees their faces. It's yes, saying- that's true. Joseph sees their faces in chapter 40. But what I had in mind was before you get to chapter 40, I had two other stories in mind. The story I had in mind was Jacob seeing the face of the of this divine or person who wrestles with him, and Jacob seeing the face of Asa. <speaking> We're going to have two other situations very soon, chapter 32 and 33, in which Jacob is confronting somebody and there one of the principal uh, descriptions, or the way the Torah uh, informs us about their, uh, their meeting is to see a face and the danger of seeing I have seen God face to face I have survived, and Jacob meeting Esau the idea of seeing one's face in general, which the Torah speaks about in terms of God later on, three times a year you shall see God's face, right? Or one might even say the binding of Isaac. In the binding of Isaac, the place is called the place in which God's, from which God sees, which today is known as the place in which God is seen. So we we have to. This is a very important uh, phrase over here. It's very striking actually, because. It contrasts with verse number one. Lavan is someone you don't know what he's actually thinking because he doesn't tell you what he's thinking. And even when he does speak, you can never exactly figure out what he has in mind. So did Lovan suspect Yaakov in the first place? When he said, would this be as you say? And then he takes those animals away. He probably, he basically, Yaakov has some trick up his sleeve. But he can't quite figure out what it is. And in any event, this is Jacob in in short. I think one more verse, verse number three, and then we'll continue next week. Then God said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers where you were born, and I will be with you. So God speaks to Jacob, but it's striking. One might say that Jacob hears God's voice in verse number three, after verse number one and two, where he discovers that he's in danger from his cousins, and he's also in danger from his father-in-law and his uncle. And suddenly God's voice is heard. And then God says, and I will be with you. And we recall what God said when Jacob had the dream. I will protect you, I won't abandon you. And we said, Abandoned. I'm going for two weeks to my to my uncle. But now we understand it. He's in danger. But God has promised to protect him and he needs protection. So we'll see about the protection. But first, we'll get to the other version of how he became wealthy. And this verse, this, this this commandment, one might say, to return. This is an interesting commandment to return. And we'll pick up next week with the story of Jacob's dream. Jacob's dream or the dream he tells his wives that he had uh, is a very important dream because it's a story that's to be read in contrast to two other stories in the Torah. So we'll we'll start that next week. Um, I did want to mention uh, that this week, uh, I have a class that I am teaching this week on Tuesday nights, four part series on Shemitah, on the, uh, the, the covenantal mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that the Torah says is very difficult to keep. I was thinking when I, Uh, recently about a different uh, name for the class. I was going to call it Mitzvah Impossible. But um, in any event, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult. But we'll be focusing on how the sabbatical year and the jubilee year appear in the Bible in general. Um, Quite interesting. And um, why, in fact, the Torah did choose this particular commandment, which itself, the Torah says, is hard to keep very difficult to keep. Why is this actually the covenantal commandment of the Bible? It actually is the covenantal commandment, which is very striking. So for those interested, that's on Tuesday night. Anyway, thank you again. And Kayla, you have any other announcements?
1: Yes. In addition to Rabbi Silver's class starting on Tuesday nights, we have another class starting Monday night, Shemitah and the Mishnah Challenges and Opportunities with Rabbi Walfish on Studying Mishnayot Shviit um on eight p- at one p.m. Eastern time, Eastern Standard Time, which is about GMT minus five. And if you want more Shmita,
0: give it a check. I want to say one thing about Rabbi Wolfish's class. Let me say first of all a disclaimer: He is my brother-in-law. Let's start with that. Avi Wolfish, come has done some very, very interesting work, but among the things he's done, what he's best known for is, he developed a completely new approach to the study of Mishnah. A literary approach to the study of Mishnah. He's the one who actually developed that. And he's the world's expert on the literary approach to the study of Mishnah. So I would highly recommend. It should be extremely, he's extremely knowledgeable. And that's that's a very interesting, it, it comes, it's together with a literary approach to the study of Bible, and I would say a literary approach to the study of the Talmud, which is also being, uh, you know, being uh, advanced in many circles. So it's, it's, I think it's very worthwhile to hear what he has to say. Shemitah aside, I think the approach is, is fascinating. Okay, thank you again for participation. Looking forward to learning with you, all of you again. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Have a kag samerk.
0: Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Sameach.